Welcome to the Independent News Hour. In the headlines today, President Biden stumps in New Jersey for Build Back Better while Congress dithers. NYC's largest police union files a lawsuit against the city's vaccine mandate. And park defenders block traffic on the FDR. Good evening in New York. I'm John Tarleton, editor-in-chief of the Independent, New York City's progressive newspaper and website. In the news, with his signature Build Back Better legislation stalled in Congress, President Joe Biden hit the road yesterday and today to pitch his agenda to voters in Virginia and New Jersey, while also stumping for Democratic gubernatorial candidates in those two states who find themselves in unexpectedly tight races ahead of next Tuesday's off-year elections. This is President Biden speaking yesterday at a New Jersey transit maintenance facility in Kearney, New Jersey. We're among the first to provide access to free education, 12 years of free education for all anyone who is an American, beginning back in the late 1800s and the early 1900s. And that decision to invest in our children and our families was a major part, a major part, why we were able to lead the world for so much of the 20th century. But somewhere along the way, we took our eyes off the ball. Our infrastructure used to be the best in the world, not hyperbole, the best in the world. Today, according to the World Economic Forum, we rank 13th in the world. Biden is hoping to wrap up legislative negotiations before he leaves the country next week for a U.N. climate summit in Scotland. But his party is still struggling to reach agreement on both the spending and taxing parts of the legislation. One thing that congressional leaders from both parties appear to agree on is that increasing taxes on billionaires to pay for President Biden's human infrastructure plan should not happen. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell denounced a billionaire's tax yesterday for penalizing those who, quote, invested wisely. While Democrat Richard Neal, chair of the House Ways and Means Committee, said imposing such a tax would be, quote, challenging. Apparently, one of the smartest investments billionaires have made is buying off key members of Congress. Here in New York, the city's largest police union has filed a lawsuit to allow unvaccinated officers to continue working despite the city's recently imposed vaccine mandate, which required all municipal employees to have received at least one coronavirus vaccine dose by November 1. The Police Benevolent Association filed its suit in Staten Island, where it is hoping to find a sympathetic conservative judge. About 70 percent of Police department employees have received at least one shot of the vaccine so far. Madeline Feliciano, the guardian of Nicholas Feliciano, the boy who was left hanging in his cell at Rikers Island for seven minutes, announced she is pleased with the Board of Corrections report on her grandson's suicide attempt, noting that, quote, someone in city government is finally telling us the truth about what happened to Nicholas. The report comes nearly two years after Nicholas Feliciano's suicide attempt. We will talk with Madeline Feliciano after the headlines. And finally, advocates for the East River Park are continuing to push back against the city's plans to bulldoze the park and chop down 1,000 mature trees. On Monday, members of Extinction Rebellion lied down on the FDR highway and blocked northbound traffic. Several members of the group were arrested. Emily Johnson of East River Park Action says there will be more protests, including one this Sunday. Uh, if the mayor and if uh, Council Member Carolina Rivera go ahead with their plan to bulldoze East River Park, a 50-acre biodiverse park with 1,000 mature trees, and the FDR continues to flow freely, then they are allowed to generate a toxic environment that harms land and people, and they perpetuate a colonial uh, value system. We are working to uh, protect East River Park, a valuable, vital uh, space for well-being for all residents of the Lower East Side. And uh, We will be back with more after this short break. I was sleeping gently, napping when I heard the phone. Who is on the other end talking? Am I even home? Did you see what she did to him? Did you hear what they said? Just a New York conversation rattling in my head. Oh my, and what shall we wear? Oh my, and who really cares? Just a New York conversation, gossip all of the time. Did you hear who did what to whom happens all the time? Who 
has touched and who has dabbled here in the city of shows? Openings, closings, bed repartee, everybody knows. Oh, how sad and why do we call? Oh, I'm glad. That was New York Telephone Conversation by Lou Reed. And you're listening to the Independence News Hour on WBAI Radio in New York. I'm John Tarleton, editor in chief of the Independent, New York City's progressive newspaper and website. You can find our latest news at independent.org. Also, our new November print edition hit the streets yesterday. You can find it in our red and white news boxes across the city, in libraries, independent bookstores, other venues. And I'm also joined today by the Indies Associate Editor, Amba Gagarian. Hi, John. It's great to be here with you and all of our listeners on 99.5 FM and sorry, on 99.5 FM. I know that number well and streaming online on WBAI.org. In the first half of today's show, we're going to delve more into the ongoing humanitarian crisis taking place on Rikers Island. In a few minutes, we'll speak with Madeline Feliciano, the guardian of Nicholas Feliciano, who was 18 when he attempted to commit suicide by hanging and guards did nothing for seven minutes to come to his aid. We're also going to be talking with Matt Thomas about the role of the judiciary in filling Rikers Island with people who shouldn't be there. But first, uh, Amba, you've been covering the crisis, crisis at Rikers for the past year and a half, interviewing uh, various inmates and staff throughout the pandemic. And you have a, a really outstanding piece in our November issue, again, that hit the streets yesterday. And I think it really synthesized so much of the reporting you have done over the past 18 months and, and really takes us inside the dysfunction at Rikers Island. And one thing I was struck by is how your article brings forward a full spectrum of voices, including the guards who are also dealing with an incredibly difficult situation. Right, John. Thank you for that. Um, and and as you were saying about sort of the spectrum of of sides on this story, I think um, a big issue in the in the in the rapid the recent rapid decline of conditions on the island that we've been hearing about um, is is the the you know the lack of guards showing up to work. But um, you know the Feliciano family, who we're about to speak with, can attest to the fact that before this work shortage. Um, you know, conditions were already quite, quite bad on Rikers Island, always have been, were exacerbated by the pandemic. Um, and the guards, partially because of that, stopped showing up, which led to even a worse situation. You know, already in 2021, 14 incarcerated people have died on Rikers Island, making this the deadliest year on, on the penal colony since 2015. And, um, at least half of those deaths have been confirmed to suicides while there's speculation that a few more were, were also. Um, and, and this is the deadliest year since 2015 when Khalif Browder uh, committed suicide uh, as 16 year old after, after being released from the Island. So this, this problem has been around for a long time, suicide on Rikers, bad conditions on Rikers. Um, and it's affecting everybody. You know, uh, it's affecting the inmates, it's affecting the guards, it's affecting the healthcare workers, and it's resulting in everybody treating each other with more violence, um, you know, as, as we often do in violent situations. So I think it's important that we notice that this situation is beyond guards, and it's really up to the city to make a change. Right. And in, in speaking of that, um, we're, we're going to... Um... Uh, speak today with Madeline Feliciano, Nicholas's grandmother, and Joshua uh, Kamagwea, Nicholas's uncle, and also uh, David Rankin, who is representing them in a lawsuit against the city. Uh, right. So we're very excited to speak with Madeline and Joshua and David. Um, and just a little intro to their situation. You know, as I was saying, negligence on the part of the Department of Correction. Um, has always been prevalent. It's gotten worse under COVID um, and steeply declined recently. But before that, 
it was already an issue. Our first guest can attest to the fact that guards not stepping in during attacks, during fights or incidents of self-harm has been an issue. Um, and, you know, Nicholas Feliciano was 18 years old when he was sent to records for a parole violation in 2019. And in December of that year, he attempted to commit suicide and was visibly hanging in his cell for seven odd minutes before anyone helped him get down. Um, and the Board of Corrections, which is the Department of Corrections oversight body, just released a report on this incident stating that the circumstances of the incident are disturbing and starkly illustrate persistent issues of the city's jails. So here to speak with us today about this is Madeline Feliciano, Nicholas Feliciano's grandmother, Joshua Carmenga. Did I say that correctly? Joshua yes. Carmenga, yes. Nicholas's uncle, and David Rankin, who is representing the family in a lawsuit against the city. So welcome to the show. Um, before we head into our questions, I just wanted to start out by saying I'm so sorry for the situation that your family has endured and continues to go through. We really, you know, we really feel for you. And um, I just laid out some of the details, but would you mind explaining, maybe Madeline or Joshua, explaining the extent to the extent that you feel comfortable, more details, more negligence on the part of the Department of Corrections and all those who were around during, you know, your, your loved one's um, attempted suicide. Um, well, yeah, it's a, it's a lot. Um, it's been a lot going on. Um, today, my grandson still almost two years next month. Um, he's still at um, rehab um, due to this tragic um, incident that happened in 2019 at Rikers Island. Um, and we got this report from the BOC last week, and um, it clearly states um, on their investigation what happened to Nicholas. Um, he was left hanging for seven minutes and 51 seconds, and um, officers were there. And Nobody interact to help him. And still today, my question is, why are these officers still working in Rikers Island? Um, they should have been fired or arrested. Um, and they're still there. And meanwhile, my grandson still has, you know, issues and, and, and he's still in a hospital, um, you know, and I'm going to continue to seek justice for Nicholas because someone needs to be held accountable for what happened. They knew that um, Nicholas suffered from mental health issues. He was supposed to be on medication. He also had a history of suicidal attempts. This was all documented and it was on record. And they just threw him in a maximum security cell and, and watched him take his life, try to take his life away. And um, nothing has been done about it. We, we haven't gotten no, no response, not even from the mayor. Like, what, you know, what, what, what happens now? It's my question. Justice needs to be done. And there's always been a problem in Rikers Island. And there continues to be a problem in Rikers Island. And after Nicholas... A lot more has happened. So, you know, something needs to be fixed here. Something is definitely wrong. So tell us, tell us, Madeline, a little bit about how Nicholas ended up in Rikers. You know, I, I, most people know but forget that actually three quarters of the population is a jail. You know, three quarters of the population are held pretrial. And then of those that um, have already been to trial, been to court, uh, there's a lot of people in there for parole violations. So tell us about how Nicholas was in there because of a parole violation. Well, according to the Department of um, Probation, they so-called claimed that Nicholas had violated parole. Um, Nicholas went into probation to parole voluntarily to meet his parole officer. Um, and the next thing I know um, on that same day, I get a phone call stating that my grandson was taken to Rikers Island for a technical parole violation. Right. And um, that he had a hearing, I think, like in December sometime. And um, this happened, what, like a week after Nicholas was taken to Rikers Island. He didn't belong there in the first place. He was only 18 and he had a lot of mental issues and he needed therapy and he needed to be on medication. Um, he didn't belong in Rikers Island. 
And, you know, uh, uh, unfortunately, a lot of the other people on the island, incarcerated people, share that situation. You know, I think at least half, actually, I'm sure that uh, 49% of um, those uh, incarcerated on the island have an M status, which means they've been diagnosed with mental health um, uh, uh, with a, sorry, with mental illness. And uh, could you just explain a little bit more sort of the services that Nicholas was lacking as far as medical services go and uh, the extent that you know that those services lack in general? Um, well, Nicholas always received um, therapy on a weekly basis with the New York psychotherapy. Um, he also used to see a psychiatrist on a monthly basis, and he was taking medications for his um, anxiety and his suicidal attempts. So what I'm thinking here is when he got to Rikers Island, according to the report, he wasn't even given no medication and he was crying for help and they didn't even give him his medication. So who could explain that to me too? Like, you know, there's neglect everywhere. The, the way I'm looking at it, Nicholas was neglected in every aspect possible and, right. and nobody did nothing about it to help him. And, and speaking speaking of neglect, uh, can you talk about the the situation that uh, unfolded that day uh, where, when he was left hanging? Uh, something like nine people walked by um, yes. before before someone uh, came to his aid. And also, what is Nicholas's situation like uh, today at this time? Well, Nicholas is still um, currently at Bellevue Hospital Rehabilitation um, Unit. Um, and he has cognitive impairment, mobility impairment, speech impairment. He was diagnosed with um, anoxic brain um, damage due to the lack of time that he was left hanging without oxygen. Um, and um, right now we're trying to get him into another rehabilitation center where he could get all the help and care that he needs. Um, but yes, um, there was officers um, walking and chatting and not doing nothing while my grandson was hanging. And according to the report, it was a minute and I believe 51 seconds and Nicholas was having a change of mind and he was trying to move the shirt where he was hanging from and they seen that and they did nothing, they did not intervene. They did nothing. So it's devastating for me, my family, you know, um, the, this horrific thing happened to Nicholas and, and these officers are still in Rikers Island. Like, how do you explain that? Uh, absolutely. Um, that's a, that's a good question, Madeline. Uh, one more question. Um, just zooming out a little bit, uh, Madeline and Joshua, you know, uh, there's been, since before Nicholas was ever on the island in 2016, uh, Mayor de Blasio announced that Rikers Island would be closed um, in 2026. So, you know, we don't know how if, how that will happen, if that will happen as Eric Adams takes place. But what's your take on what needs to be done with Rikers and how this situation should be avoided in the future? Well, um, to be honest, we, we, we feel like there has to be zero changes to Rikers Island. It just needs to be shut down completely. And it starts with the, with, with, with the mayor, Mayor de Blasio. He came in, you know, his campaign saying he was going to close everything. He was going to shut it down. He was going to make changes. Zero changes has been done. You know, they, they, they limited the people that they put in there. But besides that, no changes has been done. Everybody's still, you know, in there going, going in there with fear, you know, not knowing if they're going to come out, not knowing what's going to happen. Because there's a lot of situations like Nicholas' situation where young kids go in there, you know, not everybody has the help, you know, that and the support that Nicholas has. So they go in there with fear and they go in there not knowing what's, what, what to expect, you know. So everything starts, we think, with de Blasio, you know, specifically because he came in, you know, pledging, oh, we're going we're gonna to shut Rikers down, we're going to make changes, give us a few years, give us this, give us that. Nothing's been done, nothing at all. You know, no changes. It starts off with with with, with the um, correction officers, but these guys, um, Captain Terry Terry Henry specifically, is the guy that walked in as my nephew is committing suicide. Stays there for 14 seconds. I don't know if he was encouraging him. I don't know what he was telling him, but he was in there for 14 seconds, watching him hang himself, and then walks out. So that that is bizarre. That's 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 and you know 
every report we get, every investigation gets worse. Right. Still, no changes is being done. Nothing, nothing. But we don't we don't know if it was Harry, that, um, Captain Henry, that walked in. But there was clearly one of the corrections officers walked into the cell, looked at the situation, turned around and left, and didn't cut Nicholas down. And the corrections officers reported this as a manipulative gesture. The idea that someone trying to take their own life is somehow manipulating the corrections officers should offend every New Yorker. Uh, it's just so far beyond. How can you possibly watch someone do that and not try to help them? Right. And and that thank you. First, that was Joshua speaking, um, Nicholas's uncle, and then and then David, uh, the family's lawyer. Uh, we we really appreciate you coming on here with us. And as you said, the problem has not gotten better at all. Uh, rife neglect is so very prevalent. Uh, uh, a person named Richard Blake just died of hanging himself after uh, a guard walked off uh, a couple months ago, off, walked off for 15 hours off the post. So um, this issue has not gotten better at all. It has gotten worse. The situation with medical has only gotten worse. Only 10% of people are getting their daily meds. So I encourage our listeners to follow this issue, read up on it, do what you can, uh, keep in touch with it, pressure your representatives. And um, thank you so much, everybody who joined us today. We're going to move on to our next segment, but we, we do really appreciate you joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. And yet, in our second segment, we're going to... Whoa! Whoa! Remember... That was Two for Two for Dilla by Mad Lib. You're listening to the Independent News Hour on WBAI 99.5 FM. I'm your host, John Tarleton, also here with the Indies, Amber Gagarian. Before we continue with our second segment, I want to encourage everyone who can do so to give generously to WBAI and help keep shows like this on the air. Whatever you can give makes a difference. It helps keep the community in community radio. You can give by calling 212-209-2950 or go online to give number two wbai.org where you can make a, a generous one-time donation or sign up as a wbai buddy for as little as ten dollars per month and receive all sorts of awesome benefits for doing so yes you can call 212-209-2950 to donate to WBAI, or you can go to give number two, WBAI.org. We need the donations in order to keep running this very, very, very unique station on New York City's broadcasting spectrum. We are giving you donor-supported, independent journalism here in New York. So please give if you can. Now, moving on to our second segment. After steadily trending downward for many years, the population of incarcerated people at Rikers Island is once again rising, even though the majority of detainees have not had a trial. This is in due part to the role of law and order judges and the politicians who help them rise through the judicial ranks. 
Joining us to talk about this writer, about this, is writer and researcher Matt Thomas. He is the author of the Vulgar Marxist Substack and a keen observer of the workings of the judicial machinery here in New York. Matt, welcome to WBAI Radio. Thank you for having me. Sure, Matt. Yeah, we're delighted to have you back. Uh, you joined us uh, once before during the uh, the primary campaign, and when you had just started your Substack, and you had a really groundbreaking report on Diane Morales and her ties with the charter school industry, and now you've published an in-depth piece last week about Rhonda Tomlinson, an administrative judge at Rikers Island, who recently won a big promotion with the help or at least the acquiescence of progressive state senators in Albany. Uh, can you talk about who Tomlinson is, her role in filling jail cells at Rikers, and the promotion she has received, and who her main benefactor was? <clears throat> yeah, so um, the guest that you just had on, um, Nicholas, or the family of, of Nicholas, who was um, uh, incarcerated on Rikers and attempted suicide while incarcerated there, he was incarcerated on a technical parole violation. Um, and so when uh, people are released on under community supervision, um, if they are accused of violating the terms of their parole, um, they are entitled to go before what's called an administrative law judge, which is an employee of the Department of Corrections um, who will make a determination as to whether or not they violated the terms of their parole. And if they did, whether or not they should be reincarcerated. And there's a bunch of ALJs, um, but they are supervised by the chief ALJ at Rikers, um, the chief administrative law judge. Um, and so Rhonda Tomlinson was the chief administrative law judge on, on Rikers Island beginning in 2017 um, and was remained in that role until uh, June of this year. Um, and she had a, quite a disturbing tenure um, as chief ALJ. Um, she pressured uh, the other judges under her supervision um, to revoke parole early and often when people were brought before them accused of violating the terms of their parole. Um, she heavily pressured individual ALJs um, to revoke parole in particular cases. Um, she established a situation where if an ALJ um, wanted to uh, not reincarcerate somebody, wanted to let them go, they had to ask permission from her first and sort of plead their case. By contrast, they did not have to ask her permission to reincarcerate somebody. Um, this was uh, all revealed in an investigation by Gothamist in March of 2019. I really encourage people to go read that article. It's extremely disturbing. Um, but uh, yeah, so she really presided over this regime of uh, reincarcerating as many people as possible on technical violations. So many people were being locked up that it it started to skew the city's timeline for being able to close Rikers um, along the timeline it had set for itself. Um, and uh, they spoke with a number of people um, in uh, public defenders, uh, people who represented clients accused of violating their parole, who all spoke to the um, climate of fear and uh, punitive action that she really presided over. Uh, as the chief executive of the of the parole system on Rikers. And can you talk about some of her reasons for um, for taking those actions on parole and uh, beyond ideological reasons? Why might um, a judge be strict with their sentencing? Um, I think that. Uh... It's difficult to speak to any one judge's motivations, but in more recent reporting that's been done by Gothamist again, but also in conjunction with New York Focus, um, they've spoken with a number of people who sort of, you know, intuited and and spoken to the fact that a lot of their motivations are political, um, whether it is um, judges revoking parole, ALJs revoking parole on Rikers, or judges who are hearing arraignments um, about people being prosecuted for the first time. Um, there's a concern that if they hurt someone or if um, they do something that gets in the news, that the, that judge is going to come in for bad publicity. Mm -hmm. um, and that could be um, uh, not advantageous for their careers and their professional advancement. Um, and so it's political, really. And, and uh, the recent reporting that's been done by Gothamist in New York Focus an analysis of arraignment proceedings um, in 2020 showed that, you know, when bail reform was first passed at the end of 2019, um, 
in the beginning of 2020, judges were, you know, complying with the terms of the, the new bail laws at arraignments. Um, but as, you know, the, the, the media narrative around the so-called crime wave, which was overblown in some ways, but also there was a legitimate rise in, in violent crime and, and murders in the city and shootings. Um, as that started to get more media coverage, the judges started to uh, set more stringent terms for for bail um, and reincarcerate and incarcerate people pre-trial. Now, this is a different set of judges than the um, the ones that determine whether or not parole will be revoked. Um, but they are all responding to the same sets of incentives, which is, you know, the media narrative, um, the pressure to be tough on crime, and the knowledge that if they want professional advancement from wherever they are. Um, they're going to need to toe a certain line um, because of the power of the county mis- county-based machines and of the Albany establishment in determining whether or not that they will be promoted and and be able to advance in their careers. Right. And, and speaking of promotion, uh, can you describe uh, the the new position that uh, uh, Rhonda, Rhonda Tomlinson um, is moving up to, and the way she uh, managed to glide pretty effortlessly to confirmation in the state Senate in Albany, uh, despite this uh, disturbing history of hers. It's quite shocking. Um, so, yeah, so she, you know, she presided over this situation on Rutgers, which was quite bad for four years. A report from uh, March of 2020 from Columbia University found that black New York City residents were being reincarcerated for parole violations at a rate that was 12 times as, as often as uh, white New Yorkers. Hispanics four times as often as white New Yorkers. And, and Tomlinson is black herself. She's right? a black woman. Yes. Yes. Um, and so, uh, yeah, so, you know, she amasses this legacy, but then is nominated in, in May of uh, 2021, earlier this year, by Andrew Cuomo for a spot on the Court of Claims. This is the division of the judiciary that hears civil litigation against New York State uh, for, for if, if people want to sue the state for something. But she was also to be designated as an acting judge on the New York Supreme Court. Um, this is the name given to the division of the judiciary that houses trial judges for different civil and criminal matters. It's not like, you know, one Supreme Court. Um, as Supreme Court judges are, handle a variety of different matters, but that includes uh, criminal trials. And so um, she was going to be in a position where she would be in a, a position of power over criminal defendants after having amassed this record of a very punitive attitude towards towards people in their uh, carceral system. Uh, and it was so shocking is that there was absolutely no scrutiny of her um, barely any coverage of her nomination. I mean, Cuomo uh, pushed through quite a few nominees at the end of session in June of this year um, for judgeships as well as different executive appointments. Um, and, you know, as is typical, uh, unfortunately, in Albany, you know, they stuff a bunch of this, um, you know, down the pipe at the end of session, very little scrutiny. And, uh you know, advocates have faced a lot of tough choices about what fights they want to pick and and what they want to highlight. And so Cuomo had also tapped an extreme uh, right wing judge for a spot on the Court of Appeals, which is the top court in New York State by the name of Madeline Singus. She was the district attorney in Nassau County. Um, and there was a huge effort made to try and stop her. Um, and so I think that, you know, I don't blame the advocates for picking one, you know, villain, uh, the most the one that was going to be given the most power and sort of trying to stop her. Um, but for that reason, you know, there was just not the capacity um, to fight every battle. And uh, yeah, so there was no, I mean, it's, it's shocking because you can just Google her and, and read about her record. Um, but there was no media coverage about the fact that she was being nominated or, or given this promotion and would be in a position of power over criminal defendants. No, no connection to, to her past history, was uh, was brought up in the press, and um, she gl- she glided through. And uh, you mentioned, you know, so who who was responsible for this? So, in her confirm- uh, confirmation hearing before the Senate Judiciary Committee, um, only one member of the committee questioned her about this stuff, which is State Senator Alessandra Biaggi, who represents Rikers Island in the State Senate. Um, and to her credit, I mean, nobody was watching this. Like I said, there was no scrutiny in the press. Advocates were not pushing for this, um, but she 
looked into her and she provided real scrutiny and asked her about some of these stuff. And, you know, Tomlinson dismissed it um, because she knew that it was a done deal. Um, but so Biagi gave her that scrutiny and Gustavo Rivera, State Senator Gustavo Rivera from the Bronx also mentioned some of this history um, where when he cast his vote on the floor of the Senate. But her chief benefactor was State Senator Zelnor Myrie of Central Brooklyn. Uh, uh, Tomlinson is a constituent of Myrie's, and he is also a member of the Senate Judiciary Committee, and he spoke glowingly of her, um, talked about how important it was to have Black women on the judiciary, uh, for for, for us to have a diverse pool of judges, bringing their lived experience to the bench, um, and talked about what an achievement that would be, um, you know, is it's Orwellian uh, to to hear that about somebody who fueled a crisis which locked up twelve times as many black people as white people on technical parole violations in this prison camp that we have floating in the East River, um, but there was no scrutiny of that either, and so it's unfortunate that uh, you know people who posture as progressives and position themselves as progressives are able to. Uh, throw their support to, you know, these right-wing judges with very little public pushback. Yeah, it certainly is disappointing. Uh, We'll have to leave it there uh, for now, but uh, Matt Thomas, uh, author of the the Vulgar Marxist uh, Substack, thank you so much for joining us this evening. And this is a story we'll continue to follow, and we encourage everyone to uh, follow uh, your Substack, and you're also very active on Twitter. You're doing a a lot of great work, and um, we're really glad that you could uh, talk about it a little bit with us tonight. I appreciate it, John and Emma. Thank you both. Okay. Thank you. All right. We'll be back with more after this short break. City by Junior Kim. Meet me in the city by Junior Kimball. You are listening to the Independent News Hour. I'm your host, John Tarleton, editor in chief of the Independent, New York City's progressive newspaper and website. We have our new uh, November issue out. It hit the streets yesterday, and uh, um, so you can find that across the city in our red and white news boxes at libraries, independent bookstores, other venues. Also uh, joined by my colleague and indie associate editor Abu Gagarian. And before we go to our next guest, I uh, just want to remind you one more time that you can support the station and, and make it possible for all these amazing progressive voices to come forward on this radio station, 212-209-2950, or you can go to give number 2 wbaiorg So next Tuesday, uh, New Yorkers will return to the polls one more time in, in our city elections this year. Uh, many of the races are, are all but certain to uh, – their outcomes are all but certain, including the mayoral race uh, where Eric Adams won the Democratic nomination in June. Uh, one race that is still very, uh, very much up in the air uh, is in District 32 in, in Queens, uh, covers uh, Ozone Park, uh, uh, parts of the Rockaways and, and other parts of uh, Outer Queens. It's the last Republican held district in Queens and uh, the Republican candidate. Uh, jo- uh, Joanne uh, Ariola is facing a very strong challenge uh, from F- Felicia Singh, who won a 
hotly contested Democratic primary in June. She's a, a teacher, an educator, a, a daughter of working class immigrants, and uh, you know ran as a proud progressive in June. Didn't try to trim her sails and be like I'm a Demo, you know a Republican light kind of Democrat. And uh, so it's a real, uh, uh, you know, a real sort of uh, a dichotomy out there in a part of Queens that once uh, was solidly conservative. Uh, Felicia, welcome to WBAI. Thank you for having me on your show. I look forward to sharing more. Yeah. So uh, for starters, uh, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself and your district? Absolutely. I am a lifelong resident of a neighborhood called Ozone Park here in South Queens. I've lived here my entire life with my family, which includes my brother and my sister and my parents. I am a daughter of a taxi driver and a school bus matron. Uh, My father is from Punjab, India, and my mom is from Guyana in South America. And they immigrated here for, of course, what many people immigrate here for, which is a better life, a different one with opportunity, with the chance of upward mobility. And what we've seen over the last... 20 years, not only in South Queens, but in the city overall, is a, a, a consistent lack of understanding of our work, working class communities. Um, what, what we've seen here with the taxi medallion crisis, with uh, funding excluded workers, with so many other movements that came out of this pandemic and issues that are coming out of this pandemic, we need to make sure that City Hall is so reflective of the people who live within our communities. Uh, I am a teacher at heart. And so a lot of what we did in the primary and a lot of what I continue to do is teach our community, share with our community and learn from them as well. Felicia, you just talked about how city council, you know, needs to represent the demographics of uh, its respective um, districts. So tell us a little bit about the changing demographics um, or how demographics have recently changed in in your district, District 32, um, which is the last Republican bastion um, and, and how that, yeah, how that's, how that's changing, shifting out. So the communities that ha- that exist within our district, we have a large Bangladeshi community. We have a large Spanish-speaking population here in Woodhaven. We have Indo-Caribbeans who live in our district and folks who are South a- within the South Asian diaspora. We have folks who are Polish, um, Italian. It's a really diverse district. So f- they've lived here for decades. They've always existed. The, the, the idea of the district, quote unquote, changing is the realization that we've existed here in this community. And then so why do you think that these that I guess that that it is the last Republican district, if that is the case? So it's it's to me, it's twofold. The first, it has a lot to do with redistricting. When we redistrict our communities as per the constitutional redistricting by the census, we cut our communities of color very much. And we, because we split them up amongst several assembly districts, which happens here in South Queens, it's hard to find representation that reflects the community because the community has been split. The second is that we've appealed, or not we, rather, folks who've run for office before me have appealed to the same voting block. That same voting block is democratically moderate and Republican. And when you appeal to the same voting block, you're not expanding the electorate. You're not registering people to vote. You're not engaging a community that lives and exists in this district um, and including them. You're isolating and leaving them out. Before I decided to run for office, I knew that I wanted to talk to the people whose doors had never been knocked on before, including my own, um, and expand the electorate because that's the only way we would be able to really turn out the vote here. And that's what we did. That's the reason why this district has been Republican is because of the same voting block that has been maintained by redistricting, in fact. And in the in the June primary, you said you received far more votes in the Democratic primary than your Republican opponent received in, in their party primary. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, what's your sense of whether these uh, moderate uh, white Democrats who who voted for the uh, runner up in, in your primary, uh, whether they will stay with you or uh, align with the 
Republican candidate who is also white? You know, that's a that's a really great question. At the end of the day, this comes down to whether or not you are voting for someone who has really conservative and Trumpian values or you're a true blue Democrat who understands that I am a candidate that's able to bring more to our community. Um, And I think that vote that my opponent that came in second um, in the primary, it's kind of, it it might be split. We might have folks who are going to vote Democrat no matter what. And then we have folks who might vote on the Republican line. At the end of the day, Democrats still outnumber Republicans three to one in this district. So we have a lot of Democrats to really choose from and talk to here. And talk a little bit about your campaign trail and what it's been like and, and, and the campaign trail that you're facing coming from John Ariola and, and sort of um, who's behind him and how that makes things challenging. I'm so proud to say that we are running and we have been running a campaign that leads with courage and joy and lots of love. The work we've been doing to include community members who live here, um, who've lived here their whole lives, into in this campaign has been remarkable. Folks who've never been included in the electoral process, who've never been able to lead in their own communities outside of the traditional realms of civic associations, community boards, found a home in our campaign. Um, and that's really what got us to win. People who found a home here in this campaign, relationally organized in their own communities, in their own neighborhoods to get out the vote. Um, and the challenge overall from the primary even to the general is that as a woman of color, the standard in which I'm held is one that is so high that my opponents don't ever get questioned, don't ever get ridiculed, do not ever get held to the same standard at all, despite me being the candidate that has plans on everything on my website in three different languages. As a candidate who's labor-backed, as the candidate who's working class, as a candidate who almost lost my home. I almost lost my home in the middle of a pandemic and still these experiences are being erased um, by folks who think this is not enough, despite my opponent, Joanne Ariola in this Republican race, who is being backed by billionaires and special interests who've spent $270,000 to smear this campaign, uh, despite the fact that my opponent has kept an insurrectionist in power here as a district leader. She's under investigation by BOE for nepotism because her son works in the BOE um, and has relationships in the BOE. Um, she never gets questions on these things. Right. Uh, and, <laughs> and, and just to go back to the uh, onslaught of uh, negative uh, advertising and messaging that you're facing, uh, does this have a, a connection to what happened in the spring with a number of uh, progressive and socialist uh, city council candidates who also came mm-hmm. under a really fierce uh, attack from mm-hmm. a, a, a political action committee uh, c- controlled mm-hmm. by billionaires led by uh, real estate developer Stephen Ross? Yeah, this is very similar to that. I think what makes this unique is that there are several PACs, um, big interests that are playing a role in smearing this campaign. And together, they have uh, spent $270,000 and probably will more spend more towards the election. Um, And it tells you that folks who can't even find Ozone Park on a map, albeit figure out how to get here on the A train, are deciding how this race is going to go. And it tells you that they are using fear mongering to manipulate the vote um, for our community to keep this seat Republican, despite the fact that this minority of Republicans who may or may not be in city council are not going to have a large impact in the voting block at all. Um, So it's really it's a disservice. It's disrespectful. It's disgusting. Um, And at the end of the day, we have talk to more people in this short term of this general election than we did in the primary. So we have doubled the amount of folks that we've talked to. Uh, we're calling people on the phones. We're hitting, we're canvassing, we're knocking on doors. We're doing as much as we can to reach out to as many voters as possible, um, despite so much money being spent against us. Against us. Okay, we'll have to leave it there. But uh, Felicia Singh, the city council candidate in uh, District 32, 
in Ozone Park, uh, the Rockaways, et cetera. Thank you so much for joining us this evening, and we'll uh, continue to follow your race. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. You bet. And speaking of elections, uh, again, next Tuesday uh, will be the um, uh, election day here in New York, the general election. Early voting uh, started on Monday. And next uh, Tuesday, we're going to have an election night special here on WBAI from 7 to 9 p.m. It will be hosted by the Independent News Hour. And uh, so we look forward to uh, talking about uh, the city elections and other elections happening outside of New York City next Tuesday. Um, Eric Adams widely expected to win the election, but we're going to have some great guests on to talk about uh, what an Adams administration might look like, how it's already shaping up. And uh, we'll also be uh, talking about some of the remaining com- competitive races in New York, including the one with Felicia Singh. And we'll also be t- looking beyond New York, in, in particular to Buffalo, New York, where socialist India Walton uh, is on the in a very competitive race, but has a great chance of winning uh, and becoming the first socialist mayor of a major American city in six decades. And there's other races as well we'll look at. And uh, so anyway, we're going to have some great guests. We have Tom Robbins, uh, host of a, a Deadline uh, NYC on Monday nights on uh, WBAI, Ben Max, uh, uh, who uh, hosts the uh, Wednesday evening show at the same time slot. And we're going to have other great guests as well. So we look forward to uh, sharing all of that with you next week in our election night special from 7 to 9 p.m. We'll also be back with our regular show at 5 6 p.m. next week. And uh, um, anyway, we uh, thank everybody for joining us this evening. Uh, also, uh, Amber Gagarian from The Independent our, has done a lot of great reporting on Rikers Island, helped uh, put together all the segments that we heard earlier about that subject. And uh, so, yeah, we will be back. Uh, next week and one more time that phone number 212-209-2950 keep the community in community radio come on girls let's rock that say one for the trouble two for the time come on girls let's rock that Thank you.